Thank you, Dr. Steve. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Welcome to the Parkway Church. As Steve just read, we will be in Romans 16, uh, verses 17 through 23 uh, this morning. So as you turn there in your Bibles or make your way there on a tablet or phone or whatever uh, it might be, I want to tell you a little bit about kind of a rhythm that we have here at the church and then also something interesting that happened uh, as part of that rhythm. And so each week, uh, as you might imagine, being church staff, the staff prays. That should not be surprising uh, to any of you, but we pray about a, uh, a number of things. So at the beginning of our staff meetings, we have what's called a care list. And uh, so if you ever have any sort of medical need or you ever uh, are uh, wanting some help for your marriage or with your kids or whatever that might be, then, uh, then we will oftentimes add your name to this sort of ongoing care list. And, uh, and so we, uh, we will pray for these sort of expressed needs within the body. And, uh, and so we do that every week. And then at the end of our meetings, uh, we will also, we have a list of all of our members and we will just systematically pray through that. We do it alphabetically. And so we will just start and wherever we were at the end of the last week, we will pick up with that. And so if you've ever got an email or a text or a phone call from any of the staff saying, hey, we love you, we were praying for you this week, that's what that is uh, all about. And so we do those every week. And then once a month, we also will take uh, a list of churches that we have in the area, some of whom we have really good relationships with, others we just know they're, they're faithful, we don't have much of a relationship uh, with them, and we just pray for them, that the Lord would flourish them and, uh, and, and that they would grow and that the kingdom would be expressed, because we're not ultimately about Parkway, we're about the kingdom. And, uh, and so we were doing this. Uh, it was kind of the perfect storm where we were uh, praying the, our weekly prayers and then also had this monthly uh, thing. And, uh, and so uh, now you could tell a lot about the way that a group prays, right? And so uh, some of you are probably familiar with popcorn prayer, right? And so popcorn prayer, that's kind of the idea where someone finishes praying and then you never know who's the next kernel that's going to pop, right? You never know who's the next person that's actually going to, uh, to pray. And so you just kind of sit there in awkward silence. So sometimes to get around that, you do the thing where you hold hands and you pass the Spirit because you just kind of squeeze their hand. And so if you don't want to pray, you just squeeze a person's hand whenever they squeeze yours. And so that's kind of what some people uh, do. Sometimes you just sit there awkwardly and nobody prays. And, uh, and so uh, in order to avoid that, we pray very systematically uh, here in our staff meetings, and so we just kind of go on the, uh, the alphabetical list. And so whoever is praying for this person prays first, whoever is praying for the next person goes next, and so forth. And so this particular day, uh, the order that was very well known was myself, then Zach, then Tim, then Carl. Not only was that alphabetical, that was also the way that we were situated around the table. And, uh, and so it was very well known once I stopped praying that it was Zach's turn, then Tim, then Carl. And so uh, I finished praying for a couple of churches and finished praying for a couple of members. And, uh, and then uh, we just kind of waited and it was Zach's turn. Everybody knew that it's Zach's turn. And sure enough, Zach just immediately chimed in with, all right, guys, here's what I got for that email. Let me know what you think. Now, I've, I've been a Christian for like 19 years. I've been a pastor for like 15 years. I've heard a lot of weird prayers, right? I've heard a lot of thines and thous and betwixt and those kinds of things. Uh, I've heard all of the kind of Christian uh, jargon, the Christianese, uh, if you will. I've heard about hedges of protection and traveling mercies. And, 
The only time it's appropriate to covet is when you're coveting the prayer of a prayer warrior and all of these sorts of things. But I have never, in all of my uh, years of being associated with the church, I've never heard a prayer that was about an email and that ended with, let me know what you think. But I kind of like it, right? Like, you know, the next time that you pray for your marriage, God, will you help me to love my wife like Christ loves the church? Let me know what you think. <laughs> it's like the new millennial amen or something. Uh, but Zach was not intending to uh, kind of disregard the way that everyone prays. He had just completely lost uh, sight of the fact that we were praying. And so he says this, and instantly... Um, Tim and Carl and I look up, which is dangerous, right? Because anybody, everybody knows if you look up during prayer, your prayer doesn't come true. And, uh, and so we look at each other and we like shrug. And then we look at uh, Zach and he has this look of confusion followed by this look of terror as he realizes we're not done praying. So he, Zach is one of, you know, if you've, if you've been here for any period of time, uh, you probably know Zach's one of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. You might not know he's also one of the most disciplined and, uh, and organized people. And so it's really fun when he makes a mistake. It's like Robot Zach reboots or something like that. And that's what had happened during this prayer. Uh, he had just completely lost sight of the fact that we were still praying and that it was now his turn. And, uh, and so he started talking about this uh, email that we had talked about earlier in the meeting. Now, you might be like Zach. You might have just, as Zach just kind of forgot that we're still praying, you might be thinking, surely we're done with Romans. Or maybe you're wishing... I wish that we were done with Romans. I'm tired of all of these names and all of those kinds of things, but we're still in it. In fact, we will have two more weeks. We have this week and then next week. And here's why this is important, because we want to finish well, because all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for correction and rebuke and reproof and, and, uh, and all of these sorts of things so that the man of God, the woman of God, might be equipped might be complete for every good work. And, uh, and so even the parts that you tend in your devotional time to skip over or to skim or whatever it might be are inspired by God and there's something profitable for us. And so I want to pray for our time uh, this morning and, uh, and then we will uh, we'll get uh, to cracking. So, Father, we, uh, we're grateful for the opportunity we have uh, this morning to come before you and to hear uh, your word. And, uh, and to sit under its authority. And so I pray that you would give us hearts and minds which are uh, willing not only to submit, but also treasure your word. That we would not walk away uh, this morning just begrudgingly submitting to your authority, but that we might see that it is good and right and lovely and beautiful and true and all of these sorts of things. And so I pray for your help this morning because you're a good father who gives good gifts You've proven that by giving your son, giving your spirit, and giving us this scripture. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's begin in Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. Romans 16, 17 through 18, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, this might seem out of place 
just on kind of a, a superficial uh, initial reading, it might seem a little bit strange because we just spent 16 verses at the beginning of the chapter just listing out all of these uh, greetings for various uh, Christians. And then we have this call for us to love each other and as an expression of that love for each other to greet one another. Uh, in fact, to greet one another with this familial sign of a holy kiss. And so why does he go from these greetings all of a sudden to this warning, to this, uh, the, this uh, sort of exhortation for us to be on the lookout for false teachers and false teachings and those kinds of things. And the reason is because love warns of danger. So this is the reason. Because Paul loves the Romans, he is passionate for them that they not be misled. He is passionate for them that they not go astray. And he knows that the greatest danger to them is uh, doctrine, bad theology. And so for an apostle, or even for a pastor, uh, this is what is felt by the, the uh, elders and by the staff of Parkway. There is no greater danger to a church than false doctrine. As Christ said, do not fear those who destroy the body. He said, instead, fear the one who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. And nothing destroys the soul like bad theology, like unbelief, like that which is against the Scriptures. So last week, we saw that Paul had us greet the, sort of the, the, the co-workers uh, in Rome. So we met Phoebe. We met uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Junia and Aristobulus and Rufus. Zach gave us this sort of modern equivalent, and so if, if Paul was writing the letter today, he might say uh, something like Aquinas and greet Tyndale and greet Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and John Piper and J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and on and on and on we could go. But here in our text today, Paul tells us to watch out. For something. That's the phrase that he uses, to watch out for something. Now, there's two different ways that you can use the phrase watch out. One of them is, uh, let's imagine that you're at a baseball game and you're not paying attention uh, for whatever reason, and then all of a sudden there's a foul ball coming your way and someone yells, watch out. Or you are texting and driving, which you should not be doing, and all of a sudden you begin to swerve into oncoming traffic, and, uh, and so your spouse lovingly yells out, watch out. All right, And so uh, that is one way that we use the term uh, where it's kind of an accidental sort of thing. That's not the way that this word functions in Greek. It doesn't have this sort of idea of, uh, of you're not paying attention and so all of a sudden something comes upon you and you need to watch out for it. It has the idea instead of a very intentional effort on your part to observe and to be on the lookout for something. Uh, this Greek word is, the, is where we get the English word from scope. So a better image would be as a hunter is watching out for prey. As a watchman is on a tower of a city and he's watching out in case the enemy is to encroach upon their land. As a lifeguard is watching out for sharks or people who sh are struggling in the water or something like that. That's the imagery of this particular word in the Greek and, and this phrase that we, we translate in English as watch out, it's not an accidental circumstance. It's a very intentional and deliberate and, uh, and diligent watchfulness. That's the idea here. So what are we watching out for? What are we paying attention to? Notice what he, that he writes, those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Those who cause divisions and create obstacles but notice, he goes on after that. We can't just simply stop 
with saying what we're watching out for is those who cause divisions and create obstacles because the text goes on. It says those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. The final phrase makes all the difference in the world in this passage. In other words, the problem isn't theology. The problem in this context isn't doctrine. The problem is bad doctrine. The problem is false teaching. The problem is poor theology. So the solution isn't to just avoid theology. The solution is actually to promote good theology, which pushes out bad theology. The only cure for false teaching is faithful teaching. Now, as that kind of modernized our list of people that we might greet for us last week, I thought about modernizing a list of those to watch out for. I was, gonna, uh, I was thinking about kind of naming some names and talking about some false teachers and those kinds of things. Paul does that sometimes, so it's not like it's never appropriate to do that. He says that Alexander the coppersmith did him great harm in some sense. He says that Hymenaeus and Philetus swerve from the truth. So sometimes Paul is going to do that. He's going to name names. It's, I'm not saying it's, it's never appropriate to do that. Uh, in fact, it is. But he doesn't do that here. Here he doesn't name names. His goal is less in identifying a particular teacher as it is kind of giving these characteristics of all false teachers. He gives us sort of general characteristics because false teachers will eventually die But false teaching has a way of living on. It has a way of enduring. And so Arius, the early church heretic, he died. But Arianism is still alive and well in uh, in the cults. Or uh, or Pelagius, the the, the early church heretic, is dead. But Pelagianism, the heresy that's connected to him, is alive and well. You just pick up any self-help book and that's Pelagianism. And uh, so rather than naming some sort of uh, list uh, of modern false teachers, which is going to be out of date at some point, I want to instead just point out some false teachings that I think Paul would tell us to avoid. Indeed, I think that the Scripture would tell us to avoid. So if we're bringing this list into the 21st century, if we want to consider some of the modern doctrinal uh, dangers that we are to uh, look out for, then I would say this, I would say that we are to look out for those who proclaim, those who preach the prosperity gospel. Watch out for those who proclaim justification by works or moralism or legalism. Watch out for those who teach that, you know what, abortion isn't really that bad. It's not that big of a deal. Watch out for those who upend 2,000 years of consistent church teaching and scriptural evidence in regards to sexuality and gender, those who promote transgenderism or homosexuality or feminism. Watch out out for those who endorse racism or socialism or any of its various branches. White supremacy, critical race theory, liberation theology where God, God comes to save you from your social circumstance. Watch out for those who promote humanism or pragmatism where goodness is measured by what works rather than what's true. Or existentialism, where truth is based on experience. And anyone without some experience cannot speak authoritatively on that subject. Watch out for these because they might seem smooth and flattering, but they actually deceive and enslave and divide and scandalize 
the church. Well, isn't this just heresy shaming? Isn't that what we're doing now? We're just mentioning all these things and saying, watch out for them. Are we just being arrogant and divisive by calling attention to these things? No. In the context of what Paul is talking about here in Romans 16, correcting false doctrine is not divisive. The false doctrine itself is what is divisive. So let me add another false teaching to beware of. Beware of quote-unquote Christianized niceness or political correctness that says that speaking the truth or correcting falsehood is destructive and divisive and arrogant because the Bible says the exact opposite of that. Christ called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, children of hell, brood of serpents. Paul calls out the Judaizers who teach that you must submit to the Mosaic law to be saved. Luther is kicked out of the church for teaching justification by faith. John Calvin was kicked out of his hometown of Geneva for his preaching. Jonathan Edwards was kicked out of his church. Charles Spurgeon was kicked out of his denomination. Do you see a pattern developing here? Whenever I was a kid, I was almost six years old, one of the greatest movies to ever come out came out. It was called The Karate Kid, all right? This was the cinematic, I think it won all the Oscars that year or something like that, all right? For the, first, uh, 30, for the last 35 years, this uh, movie has been embedded into cultural consciousness, right? If I do the crane thing, everybody knows I'm talking about The Karate Kid. There's been various sequels and remakes, which are no good. There's even been this recent resurgence uh, on, uh, on YouTube called Cobra Kai. I haven't seen it, but Carl's a fan. Um, so I haven't seen that, but I have seen this video on YouTube that is hilarious. And uh, what the video is, it's this retelling, this revisioning of the Karate Kid, whereby Johnny Lawrence is the true Karate Kid and Daniel LaRusso is the bully. It's the opposite of the, uh, the actual story, and uh, it's really funny. But that sort of uh, revisionism happens in churches even today. Someone teaches falsehood. Someone is the true divisive one. Someone is the, truly the arrogant one. They disregard uh, Scripture. They disregard 2,000 years of Christian interpretation. They're being arrogant. They're being divisive. They're corrected and rebuked. And what's their response? They cry foul. They say, you're being arrogant. They say, you're being uh, divisive. They claim that they're the victim, that the one who corrected it is in the wrong. It's the theological equivalent of a James Harden three-pointer, if you're familiar with that, where he just jumps right into the defender, and then he acts like he's been fouled. But look how Paul addresses this in his pastoral letters. 1 Timothy 6 in particular. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, listen to what he says about this person. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is condemning. It is the person who is teaching against the Scripture who is arrogant. It's the person who is teaching bad theology, bad doctrine, who is being divisive. So what's the measuring stick? How do we measure whether or not we are being divisive or arrogant or whatever it might be? By doctrine, by theology, by biblical interpretation. Now, there is a way to teach good theology meanly, 
uh, with a poor spirit. There is a way to teach good theology arrogantly or unlovingly or divisively, but there is no righteous way to teach false doctrine. There's an unrighteous way to teach true doctrine, but there is no righteous way to teach false doctrine. And so God expects His people to warn against its inherent dangers, and that's what Paul does here at the beginning of Romans 16, verses 17 through 18. Let's keep going in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Uh, In 2009, I was able to visit uh, Sudan for the first time. It was uh, back whenever Sudan was one uh, joined united country before the south and the north had split off. And so they were kind of in the middle of this uneasy, uh, uh, tense sort of peace treaty between the north and the south as they tried to figure out how they were going to vote towards uh, independence. And on that, uh, that first trip... I spent a lot of time speaking with this Sudanese Presbyterian bishop buddy uh, of mine, and uh, we talked about the theological dangers and the, the, the physical dangers that, were facing, uh, that was facing the Sudanese uh, church. And uh, eventually our talk kind of gravitated towards the prosperity gospel, which has made these huge inroads within Africa. And, uh, and so I asked him, you know, uh, is this a big problem in your churches? And he said, uh, no, we're too poor which I thought was really, really insightful by him. What's really interesting, though, is over the next three years, as I took five other trips uh, to Sudan, by the end of that three years, all of a sudden, the prosperity gospel had gone from having almost no presence in southern Sudan to now being flourishing in, uh, in that way. Why? Because there was now opportunity for it to advance. The southerners gained freedom, and at least the prospect of some degree of wealth and development. As war ceased and all of a sudden it seemed like it was a little safer, false teachers began to strike. That reminds me of how this verse begins. Paul says, for your obedience is known to all. So now you can kind of grasp why Paul is concerned about false teachers in the church. Because your obedience is known to all. In other words, if you build it, they will come. That's kind of the idea here. There's opportunity in Rome so it's to be expected that opportunists, opportunists would come. The Roman church is this fledgling congregation. It wasn't planted by an apostle. It's not been visited by an apostle. It's not formally supported by an apostle. It's rather young and immature, kind of like a newborn in the wild. And so it's vulnerable. It's ripe for predators. So Paul desires that the Romans... And by extension, kind of the universal church, this would be his hope for the entire church, would have the ability to distinguish falsehood from truth and good from evil, to recognize the distinctive roar of a lion or the howl of a wolf, or to identify the aroma of falsehood, the stench of deadly error. And so yet again, we see this importance of theology. After all, how does one distinguish good from evil? without theology, without doctrine, without thinking rightly, thinking biblically, understanding God's revelation? How do we watch out for those who teach false doctrine unless we understand good doctrine, right doctrine? So he wants the church to be what he says, wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, which I think is an allusion to at least a couple of other places in Scripture. What is an allusion? Not illusion like Job Bluth's magic trick or something like that, but allusion with an A, it's an expression that brings something to mind without explicitly 
mentioning it. In other words, Paul is so steeped in Scripture that it's been said before, if you were to cut him, he would bleed Bible. Even when he's not explicitly quoting it, he can't help it, just overflows from him. So he's always speaking. It's always just below the surface there, some sort of biblical reference. And so this call to be wise and innocent might remind you of something that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Notice the same context as our passage this morning. The church is this flock of sheep, vulnerable in the midst of wolves or false teachers. Which means not only do we need the authority of God's Word as our sword, as our shield, as our rod, as our staff, not only do we need the authority of God's Word to distinguish falsehood and watch out for false teachers, but we need each other as well. A single sheep is vulnerable, but this united flock is much harder to attack. So we need accountability and community. We need pastors and theologians and scholars past, present, Uh, and so forth, to help us distinguish sheep from wolf, serpent from dove, good from evil. And this reference here to good and evil might be a second allusion reminding you of the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if that language, the language of good and evil, kind of whispers to you the imagery of the garden, the next verse is going to scream it. So let's look there in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If you were able to be with us on uh, Christmas Eve this past year, we spent all of our time just looking at one verse uh, from the Old Testament. It was Genesis 3.15, which says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Scholars call this the Proto-Evangelion or Proto-Evangelium, depending on whether you're looking at it in Latin or Greek. It means first gospel. That's what that phrase or word means. In other words, embedded right there in the midst of Genesis chapter 3, in the midst of this curse of the fall, is this glimmer of hope, this little hint of light in the midst of darkness. And Paul picks up this language and, uh, and says that this is being fulfilled, that Christ, who is the offspring of the woman, has crushed the head of the serpent. He's dealt a death blow to the enemy. In other words, though we face adversaries and those who teach false doctrines, our ultimate adversary is not those who teach false doctrines. Our ultimate enemy is not those uh, who are of flesh and blood. So heretics are not ultimately our adversaries. We have one adversary And that is Satan. In fact, his very name means adversary. Now, I want you to notice a few things about these three words that you see here in this text. Will, soon, and your. First, the word will. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In other words, this is decisive. Satan is not some sort of eternal enemy. This is unlike Greek mythology where the gods are kind of uh, indulged in this sort of perpetual fight and kind of the, you know, one would get the upper hand and the other would get the upper hand, but they're kind of evenly matched like two guys that are arm wrestling and it never really ends. That's not the imagery that you see in Scripture at all. One day Christ will return and at the word, with a word, Satan will be judged. 
just like that. This will happen. There are no ifs or maybes. God is sovereign. Satan is a created being who is a pawn in God's hand. There's not any sort of uh, dualism that's going on here. So the word will is important. Second, notice the word soon. Now don't misunderstand. We're not going to kind of calculate the date of Christ's return or something like that. He's coming soon, but divine clocks are different from our clocks. This book was written nearly 2,000 years ago, and yet uh, even then Paul could write that, God, uh, that Christ's return was soon because a day to the Lord is like a thousand years. You see, in Jewish eschatological thought, that's a fancy word that just means end times, as the Jews uh, thought of the end times, you have two ages. You have the current age, and then you have the age to come. You have the, the end, basically. And at the end, there is this expectation, the sign of the end will be the resurrection of the dead, that the dead will be raised from their tombs, and that's a sign of the end. So in Jewish thinking, there was this hard and fast line between the two ages. You have the present evil age, and then you have the age that is to come, and the sign of that is going to be the resurrection. What's really interesting is that Christ changes the paradigm to some degree. You have the present evil age, but you have something that happens with Christ's resurrection. In other words, the end has already begun. You have this kind of overlap between the ages, so we live in the already but not yet. In some sense, Christ has already accomplished everything. In another sense, we're still waiting for the consummation. The resurrection has broken into time, and so we live in the overlap between these two ages. And so on Easter, we saw that all of Christ's miracles are signs of the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom? We said it's the overcoming of all the obstacles to the rule and reign of God. When all of God's enemies have been subjected to His authority, when there is shalom, when there is peace. That's why this says the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Christ's miracles show that. So he drives out the demons to show that he has authority over the demons. He heals the sick to show that he has uh, authority over sickness. And the resurrection is this consummate sign that the kingdom has begun even now. That the kingdom of God has arrived because it shows that the last enemy, that is death itself, has already been defeated and will one day be destroyed. So Satan will be crushed. We see that here in this passage. But so will cancer. So will marital strife, so will abuse, so will sickness, so will death, and all the other various forms of chaos that enter into the world in the fall. So the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet fully here. We live in the overlap of two ages. And lastly, I want you to notice this word, your. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's God who crushes but He does so under the feet of His children. He does so under the feet of believers who will rule and reign with Christ. So we see not only is the ultimate victory for Christ, but also we see that we Christians get to experience ultimate victory because we are in Christ. And whatever is put under His feet is put under our feet because we are in Him. And until then, there is grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is kind of a Pauline signature. If you ever get an email from me, you'll notice that right before I sign my name, uh, I will put grace and peace. Well, that's how Paul begins all of his letters. Every single letter that he begins, he begins with grace and peace. And in every single one of his letters, he ends 
with this, what's called a grace benediction. He ends with this blessing of grace at the end. That's how he concludes every single letter. We won't go through all of them, but look, 1 Corinthians 16, 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians 6, 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. You could go on to Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Thessalonians and all of these. Every single one of them ends with grace. Don't take my word for it. Go home, look that up. I could keep going. You get the idea, though. Why does Paul begin with grace and end with grace? We talked about this as we concluded the book of Ephesians a couple of years ago. The reason is because, at least partly because, the letter itself is grace. There's this, uh, uh, this literary technique in, uh, in, in uh, the ancient Near East and in Jewish literature and that kind of stuff. It's called an inclusio. It's basically like bookends. You talk about something at the front end, you talk about something at the back end, and everything in between is somehow related to that. Paul begins with grace and he ends with grace as an expression that this letter itself, the book of Romans, is grace. It's God's gift to you. So we've been talking about this entire time. God's Word is a gift to His people. Every single word of every single verse that we've read in our past uh, one and a half years, every single thing that we've read in the book of Romans has been grace. From the depressing valleys of human depravity that you see in Romans chapter 5 to the majestic mountains of divine sovereignty and divine love, that we see in chapters 8 and 9, to the exhortations, to the commandments, the imperatives of chapters 12 and 13, even to the greetings that we're going to see in verses 21 through 23. So let's turn there. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sisypater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now before we begin, I want to deal with a question I think that's really important, and that is, where in the world is verse 24? You notice that we end here with verse 23. There's not going to be another slide that has verse 24 later or something like that. Um, and, uh, and so we won't be walking through that. Next week, we'll begin with verse 25. So what happened to verse 24? Why do we just take it out of our Bible? If you're looking at an actual Bible, you might notice that your copy of, Bi- of the Bible probably doesn't have verse 24. What does verse 24 say? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. All right. I didn't put a scripture reference there for the reason that I don't think that this is actually part of the Bible. This gives us an opportunity to talk about what's called textual criticism. All right, this is really fascinating. This is really interesting. What is textual criticism? It's the science of trying to recover an original document from copies of that document. The science of trying to recover an original document when you don't have the actual original copy, uh, you only have copies of that uh, document. We did an entire theological equipping class uh, on this subject back in March of 2017, cleverly entitled Textual Criticism. So if this is new to you, let me encourage you, go back and listen to that audio, especially if this confuses you or this bothers you or it begins to like upset your view of the, the authority of Scripture or something like that. Go back and listen to that or come and chat with us. I'm going to give a brief summary 
uh, of this subject, but won't get to uh, dive into it in, uh, in detail. So here's what you need to know about textual criticism in order to understand why there is no verse 24 that we're talking about today, and, except for what I'm talking about right now, and, uh, and then why there's no verse 24 probably in your copy of Scripture. First thing that you need to know, we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies of Scripture. And scholars call these uh, different copies of Scripture, they call them manuscripts, right? They're called uh, manuscripts. And this is really unique, the fact that we have all of these thousands of copies of Scripture compared to other literature from ancient literary history. When it comes to most ancient documents, we have maybe four to ten somewhat early copies. Most ancient documents that we have, you have from four to ten copies, and that's it. When it comes to the New Testament, listen to this, we have 5,700 in Greek and we have 10,000 in Latin and over 20,000 in other language. And by the way, that number is still growing as archaeologists find more and more and more ancient copies. So not only do we have this sort of wealth of evidence, but when it comes to most ancient literature, our earliest copies are four to five centuries after the original was written. When it comes to the Bible, we have copies that were written within a generation of the original. Now, as you might expect, not all of these copies are precisely the same, right? Ancient scribes were human after all. They made mistakes. They had uh, typos, if you will. Between those thousands of copies, we have places where they don't actually uh, agree. Those are called textual variants, which is where two or more texts do not uh, perfectly agree uh, for whatever reason. The vast majority of these textual variants are really small things. It's like the difference between the word a and the word an. That would be considered a textual variant because technically the text is not exactly the same. Now, does the meaning change one bit? No. Or other changes that you'll often see is the difference between Jesus the Christ or the Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Again, not major things whatsoever. And so the vast majority of these things are really, really small. And by comparing all of the documents of Scripture, uh, scholars are able to easily spot the overwhelming majority of these typos. Uh, in fact, it's about 99% of the New Testament. We can, uh, we can have absolute certainty as to what the original said. What about the other 1%? Even then, no major doctrine of Scripture is at stake. We have manuscripts that might say the gospel of Christ rather than the gospel of God, which is significant. The difference between Christ and God is a, a significant verbal thing. But we don't have any manuscripts that say Jesus wasn't God. We don't have any manuscripts that say Jesus didn't rise from the dead or something like that. So this is nothing to be afraid of. This is nothing for us to avoid or to shun or to hide from or whatever it might be. In fact, many Bibles, your Bible that you're looking at might have some sort of footnote or endnote or notation or something like that. It might have brackets around that pointing to this uh, where there's the, some sort of question in the manuscript tradition. Bottom line, this is a fascinating subject, um, but it is nothing that should disturb your faith even an iota, not a bit. And it shouldn't in any way disturb your confidence in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. So all of that is just to say, when we teach that the Bible is inerrant or infallible and perfect, 
we actually mean the original manuscripts that were written by Paul, Peter, and John, and so forth. And so our English Bibles are inerrant and authoritative and whatever to the degree that they match those. And again, in 99% of the case, we know exactly what it says. In the other 1% of the place, there are these minor things that should be footnoted or bracketed or something like that, but they are uh, very minor uh, additions or subtractions, whatever it might be. So when it comes to verse 24, the oldest and best manuscripts do not contain it, so it's likely that a scribe simply inserted it. He saw the grace blessing before, he incited, decided to insert another afterwards. So the translators of the ESV have left it out, not the, because they're trying to take something from the Bible, but it, because they're trying to correct a mistake that a scribe added something to the Bible. Does that make sense? That's all that's happening with verse 24. That's textual criticism. Again, listen to that audio or come and chat with a staff member. If you've never heard any of this before, I apologize. I wish that some pastor would have told you this sometime uh, in the past, but I assume the reason they didn't is because it really isn't that big of a deal. This is not like uh, some sort of smoking gun conspiracy or something uh, like that. It doesn't threaten our faith or the doctrine of Scripture. So let's turn our attention from what isn't in Scripture to what actually is. And we come to yet another list of names. Last week we saw that you can learn a lot from a list of names. For example, we saw last week that we can learn that all Scripture is inspired. Not just the red letters of Jesus, as if those are more authoritative than the letters of the Spirit or something like that. Not just the commands of Scripture that you like to do. Not just the ones we put on coffee mugs or bumper stickers or t-shirts or pillows. All Scripture, every single word. Genealogies are inspired by God and therefore profitable for you. Lists of numbers are inspired by God and therefore profitable. Lists of names, all of it. Second, we saw that God uses ordinary people. We have no clue who the vast majority of the names that we saw last week are. We don't have a clue who some of the names from this week are. Which brings us to the third thing that we can learn, that ordinary people simply use their gifts. Some are teachers, some are well-known. Some are patrons who financially support ministry. Others, like we'll see today, host gatherings in their home. The church isn't ultimately this building or a 501c3 organized under the laws of the state of Texas. The church is ultimately an assembler, assembly of rather ordinary, regular people who simply have a new identity in Christ and seek to steward their lives for the sake of the kingdom. The fourth thing that we can see is that God doesn't have a particular type. We saw on the list, we, he, God uses male and female. He uses rich and poor. He uses Greek and Gentile, or, or, or Jew and Gentile. He uses slave and free. He uses the famous and the unknown. He uses the educated and the uneducated. So last week, Paul sent greetings to those in Rome. This week, he sends greetings from those who are with him. In other words, Paul is not a lone ranger Christian. He's an apostle. He's been personally commissioned by Christ to spread the gospel, and yet he does so in community. If Paul needed community, how much more? Do we? And so Paul mentions eight men in particular. I want to briefly mention each of them. First, he mentions Timothy. You're probably well aware of him. He's Paul's closest ministry associate, his right-hand man. He shows up in most of Paul's uh, letters. In fact, he's only not mentioned in a couple of letters. Paul even addresses two letters to him. Then you have Lucius. There is a Lucius of Cyrene that's mentioned in Scripture uh, this probably isn't the same guy. If not, we don't know anything about Lucius. Then you have Jason, maybe the same Jason who was mentioned in Acts 17 as Paul's host in the city of Thessalonica. 
Then you have Sosipater. This could be a guy who's elsewhere called Sopater, who was part of Paul's traveling team, but we don't know. Sopater and Sosipater uh, are kind of like Charles and Chuck or something uh, like that. These last three are all uh, described as kinsmen. That doesn't mean that they're like Paul's cousins. It just simply means that they're Jewish. That's how that word is often used. Then we have Tertius. And notice what it says about Tertius. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter. What does that mean? I thought Paul wrote this letter. I thought Paul, the, the entire time, for 16 chapters, we've been saying Paul wrote, Paul wrote, Paul said, and, uh, and so forth. I thought Paul wrote it. Well, he did. Tertius is what is called an amanuensis. We'll put that word up on the screen. It's probably unfamiliar to most of us. Literally, the word means a hand servant. You see the root for hand in there, manual, like manual transmission or manual labor or something like that. An amanuensis was like a secretary or a stenographer who would copy the words that are dictated by an apostle. All right? And so Peter mentions an amanuensis named Sylvanus. 1 Peter 5.12, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Now, Tertius is the only amanuensis that Paul explicitly mentions in all of his letters, but it seems as though he generally used one, which is why he'll say things like 1 Corinthians 16.21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Or Galatians 6.11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Or Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Or 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way that I write. In other words, the rest of the letters I dictated, but here is my unique signature. Paul apparently has some sort of really distinct way of uh, writing. A lot of, uh, a lot of scholars think that he had some sort of eye condition that he wrote with a really large script because he couldn't see all that well. Well, the other day I walked into Carl and uh, Zach's office and on the board, Tim, for whatever reason, had, had written down on the board impressions of each of our handwritings. And it actually was pretty good. And, uh, and so from Carl's fancy cursive all the way to Zach's sort of like serial killer ransom note or something like that, we, we each have distinctive handwriting. And so uh, any of us on staff, if we write something, uh, probably some of our members would be able to discern who uh, wrote it. That's the idea here. There's something distinct that lets the readers know that this is Paul's writing. Again, maybe large letters because of an eye condition or something like that. So this is fascinating because if someone asks who wrote Romans, there's actually three different ways that we can answer that question. We can say the Holy Spirit wrote it because he inspired it. You can say that Paul wrote it because he dictated it. And you could say that Tertius wrote it because he's the one who actually wrote it out by hand. So that's Tertius. Then you have Gaius. He's probably the guy mentioned at the, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians that Paul had, uh, had baptized. Then you have Erastus. There's an Erastus that's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. We're not sure if it's the same guy or not. This one is uh, called a city treasurer, probably in Corinth, since that's where most scholars think that Paul wrote the letter of Romans from, is from uh, Corinth. Interestingly enough, there are a couple of uh, inscriptions that archaeologists have found from the first century in Corinth of a guy named Erastus who paid for a particular road to be paved uh, at his own expense. So this might be the same guy. We don't, uh, we don't know. But lastly, you have Cordus, who's otherwise unknown. His name means four, like Tertius means three. So he was probably a slave. That was a fairly common thing to do uh, in, uh, in uh, Greco-Roman cultures. You just name your slave 
the next number in the list after the previous slave. So if you're like the 113th slave, your name is 113, which is quite a mouthful. Uh, but that's uh, kind of the idea there. So you have these eight, uh, these eight men, and they're all somehow with Paul, traveling with him, working with him, helping him in his ministry. And so Paul sends greetings to Rome on behalf of these eight men. So that's verses 17 through 23. Lord willing, we have one more week in the book of Romans, and then we will uh, spend a couple of months walking through the, uh, the book of Jonah. But before we wrap up Romans, I just want us to take a moment and talk about the doctrine of Scripture. We've encountered a lot of different nuances when it comes to bibliology, that is the study of Scripture this week. We've talked about the inspiration of Scripture, even a list of names. We've talked uh, about textual criticism. We've talked about the use of amenuenses, but more importantly, we began with this discussion of the dangers of false teaching. All of this is kind of under the umbrella of bibliology, the doctrine of Scripture. How do you distinguish false teaching from true teaching, good theology from bad theology? How does one become wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil? The answer is by Scripture, which means that we have to be a people of the book, people who know it, who love it, who treasure it, who memorize it, who meditate on it, who aren't content with cliches and platitudes, who don't think that heresy or false teaching is cute and cuddly, but recognize its sting and venom. That we have to be a congregation who hungers for the Word, who thirsts for truth, who demands exegesis and exposition of the text, who would rebuke our elders and fire our staff if we start drifting into shallow and superficial sermons, because in Scripture is all that is necessary for life and godliness, and all that is necessary that the man or woman of God may be complete, lacking in nothing, equipped for every good work. So I want to close by just uh, reading from Psalm 19 on the beauty and authority and sufficiency and glory of God's Word, and may we bask in this this morning. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So may the Lord bless His Word, and may we be built up in it for our good and God's glory. Let's pray as the men come forward to serve us communion, and we'll talk about the implications of the gospel from there. Father, again, I thank You for Your Word this morning, and uh, just confess that it's good. I pray that You would protect us, Lord, as, as uh, Paul began uh, with this, uh, this exhortation, this encouragement for us to be on the lookout, to watch out for uh, false teachers and false teachings, Lord, that uh, that might characterize our lives, that we might not be those who are uh, easily led astray by uh, flattery and, uh, and smooth words, Lord, that we might be a people of the book who love it and treasure it and understand it. And so would you help build us up and encourage us uh, and edify us. We thank you, Lord, for the gift 
of your word. We thank you for the gift of communion. Pray that you would prepare our hearts as we prepare to take it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.